thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for being here. Those of you who watch on the internet, thank you guys for watching. I hope that you find this to be educational, not just to your mind, but to your heart and to your spirit as well. I love getting to teach and I love what we're teaching right now. It's a great sense of, of, uh, convergence for me between my lifetime of studying the Bible and Paul and my lifetime of practicing law, at least as an adult. I graduated from Lipscomb Undergraduate School, uh, where, where I took my degree in Greek and Hebrew, and then from there went to law school at Texas Tech University. And one of the things that, that as a lawyer, I ask clients routinely, or not just clients, even witnesses, is what do you do in this world? What do you do for a living? If you work outside the home, do you work inside the home? You know, what do you do? As students, one of the questions you'll get asked a lot is what are you going to do when you grow up? Or what are you going to do when you get out of school? You just graduated from high school. You're going into a military, career, uh, college. You know, what are you going to do with your life? It's a common question of either what are you doing now or what are you going to do? Usually, Usually, people give you an answer that, that is one of, of either an expression of where they are in the world or where they hope they will be. Very rarely do you have someone say to you, well, I'm a charlatan, or I'm a fake, or um, uh, my goal in life is to embezzle. Uh, when I grow up, I want to be a thief. Um, in fact, uh, look the other way and open your purse. Uh, that kind of answer you generally don't get. But I would sit down with Paul and I would want to know, uh-oh, why my remote control doesn't work. Uh-huh. And my remote control isn't working at all. So, let's see. Uh, we got it now. I would want to know, okay, we got it. What is your job? What do you do for a living? Paul, are you a missionary? Paul, are you a preacher or a pastor? Paul, are you a part-time tent maker? Because we've heard that somewhere, read that in the Bible. Hey, Paul, are you an apostle? And if you're an apostle, I'd like to know, are you a real one? Or a fake one. Because I thought that there were supposed to be 12. And Judas Iscariot was one of the 12. But after he uh, uh, betrays Jesus and commits suicide, they voted in another guy named Matthias to be the 12th. So where does Paul get in? Who, who opened up that seat? Maybe he's a fake apostle. Or maybe he's just an apostle light. You know, he's, he's like, not the real thing. He's just half the calories. I mean, and, and this whole apostle thing, is this something Paul was doing for money? I mean, is it about the money? I want to know, is he real or is he fake? Now, I'm going to admit to you right now, I tend to be overly sensitive about these things. I tend to be overly sensitive because of what happened when I was at law school at Texas Tech University. In our law school, I, while I was in law school, I stayed very active in our campus ministry, which was really a ministry to the undergrads. But I taught in that ministry, and it was a lot of joy for me. And uh, I would I would frequently find myself in the student ministry center right off campus. And I was in that ministry center one day when this fella comes in. He's about six foot tall. He's got dark hair. He was uh, maybe 15, 20 pounds heavier than, than he would have liked. Nice guy, gregarious, and he comes in with a British accent. Now, in Lubbock, Texas, the only British accents you routinely run into are on TV. It's not, not a big communication nexus point with the the motherland. So 
I, I mean, we're all kind of stunned. Well, he comes in and he's looking for a law student named Mark Lanier. Thinking, well, I can take you to him. It's me. So he says to me, he says, uh, well, I wanted to talk to you. I've heard that you're a law student. I've heard that you're active here. I've heard that you're from Lubbock. I said, yes. He said, let me introduce myself. My name is Thomas Justin Phelps III. Sounded very British to me. I said, well, good to meet you, Thomas Justin Phelps III. Call me Thomas. Good to meet you, Thomas. Thomas proceeds to tell me, that he's a front man as a kind of a logistics, legal, administrative guy for Exxon. That Exxon has got this big, massive piece of litigation that's going to be taking place in Lubbock, Texas. That nobody knows about it yet, so I've got to be silent. And he makes me take... Uh, a, a vow of secrecy of sorts. And he says that he's there as the front man because he's got to find offices. He's got to find personnel. He's got to find some law students that might be willing to do some research and, and get hired on. And he's hoping that I might be one of those law students and I might be one of those helpers. And I thought, well, this sounds like a really neat deal. My grandfather, mom's dad, worked for Humble Oil as it developed into Exxon later in years. And, and I thought this would really be kind of a neat opportunity. Of course, there's a little bit of me that's a little bit skeptical about anybody who comes in and says something like that. But, but I just thought, you know, there's no harm in watching. So over the next several weeks... Thomas becomes a fixture in my life, in the life of the student center, in the life of a number of people there. He uh, um, is a pretty gifted guy. He knows a little bit of something about just about everything. Had a good grasp of the legal system, good grasp of oil and gas, had a good grasp of, of uh, the Bible, had a good grasp of music, was pretty decent guitar player, played a decent game of ping pong. I did take him, but he was good. He'd taken Seifert, Janet, not Bob. Uh, he he was he was a talented guy. Meanwhile, there was this gal. Her name was Sarah, no H. My Sarah has an H. There was a gal named Sarah who was sort of part of the campus ministry, but she wasn't really that active. And Thomas seemed to take a shine to her. One day Thomas came to me and he was crying as he told me he was worried about Sarah's soul. He was worried Sarah didn't have a saving faith in the Lord Jesus. And he wanted me to pray with him about her. And then he said that he's got a chance to take her to lunch. And he wants to just sit down with her however long it takes and talk to her about the Lord. And be with her when she makes that commitment to give her life to him. I said, man, this is great. You know, yeah, I'd love to pray with you. I hope this turns out to be a cool deal and all. And he says, well, I need to borrow your car to take her to lunch. I said, hey, that's fine. Borrow my car. I mean, it's not like it was, you know, this was a blue four-door LTD, okay, that, uh, that basically could have, substituted as a warship if it could float, okay? I mean, this is not, this is not, gee, look at Mark and his Camaro, okay? This is law student trying to make it by. Um, so, so he borrows my six-year-old Ford LTD four-door blue car, 
drops me off at home. As it's dropped me off at home, I'll get it from you later whenever you're done. And I pray with him, and he goes off to get Sarah. About two, three in the afternoon, I'm thinking, my lunch must be going pretty good. About three, four in the afternoon, I'm thinking, man, I'm probably really going through it. About four or five in the afternoon, I'm enough concerned to where, by the way, those of you who are under the age of 30, we did not have cell phones back in the 80s. This is about 1981, 82. So I call the student center. Curtis Pete, Charles Mickey, anybody seen them? They up there? Thomas, Sarah? Uh, no, we heard they were going to lunch, but I hadn't seen them. Okay, well, uh, let's start checking around. Call Sarah's parents. Hey, what's the word I'm saying? We're beside ourselves. We don't know. Now, here's what transpired. Thomas Justin Phelps III picked up Sarah and had convinced her that he, they were soulmates. And he was going to take her away from her oppressive life in Lubbock, Texas, and sweeping her off her feet, got her to collect her hope chest, the silver and things like that that her parents had been setting aside for her, took her to the bank where she drained her bank account, on the way out of town, said, we need to just stop and plan. So they got a hotel room just outside of town. And he said, I'll go get us some dinner. And he brings back the dinner. And as they're sitting there planning, he has doctored her dinner with drugs such that she is unconscious. And he's gone. In my Ford Blue, four-door, LTD, missile boat, car. Sarah wakes up, calls the campus minister, doesn't know where Thomas is. They were making these great plans and she fell asleep. We are all beside ourselves. We all go to the hotel we start ministering and, and, and caring for Sarah. Her parents come in. The FBI gets involved. And it turns out his name was not Thomas Justin Phelps III. What is more, he was not from England. He was from California. He'd already spent time in prison from pilfering people. He had just hit a campus ministry in New Mexico, and we were the next on the list. We didn't know where my car was. I'm a little bit concerned about it. My dad was out of town at the time in Amarillo, Texas. Mom or I or one of us called Dad. Mark's car's been stolen. Dad says, oh, I think it's at the Amarillo airport. I said, what? He says, yeah, I was driving down Interstate 30, whatever it was, yesterday, out by the airport, and I saw what looked like your blue four-door LTD car headed to that. And I thought, that looks like Mark's car, but it's not him driving. Sure enough, Thomas had dropped my car off at the airport in Amarillo. The FBI gave us great details, but they weren't able to find him. He went on to pill for other people. But ever since then, I've always kind of been curious. What's your job? What do you do for a living? It was a long introduction, but it serves the point because of this. I'm suspicious of any... By the way, he didn't work for Exxon either. Just don't want Exxon in trouble here. All made up. He had found out about me, he had found out about all of this stuff, and executed with great purpose and planning. 
the, the stories could go on for hours because they really were, it was an amazing thing he did. I mean, it, he was, he was good. Okay. But I look at Paul and I ask this question. Are you really an apostle? Are you real? Are you a full-fledged apostle? And are you in this for the money? Look, we're in church. Take off your church hat for a minute. Think about that. Not you, Miss Carolyn. If you took your hat off, we would not recognize you. <laughs> Other than Miss Carolyn, take off your church hat. If you're out there in the world, in the real world, the nitty gritty, where the rubber hits the road, how many people are really doing something for someone else and not to their own enrichment? Sure, it happens. Sure, it happens. And heavens, on Memorial Day of all days, we know it happens. But it's rare. That's one reason we honor it so. Paul says he's an apostle. It's some label that he puts all over the place. He placards it. If you just want to start looking at the start of his letters, the Romans 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Look at uh, Galatians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle, not from man, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Look at uh, 1 Timothy 1, 1, well, Ephesians 1, 1, Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. 1 Timothy 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. I mean, this is who he is. He's an apostle, he says. Well, i got to ask the question, if an apostle is such a big deal and he's putting it all over the place and he's putting it on all of these letters, what is an apostle? Now, you're maybe in church, so you're thinking, okay, an apostle, that's one of those twelve. Jesus had 12 apostles. Apostles equal 12. Maybe you're a film buff and you remember that Robert Duvall got best actor in the movie, The Apostle. If you've got much uh, Muslim heritage, you might know about Muhammad being one of the apostles. A Rasul, he was a, a messenger. The ultimate messenger, according to Islam. You might uh, be uh, familiar with the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, who have a quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and that's an office that they have within their religious organization. I want to know what an apostle is in terms of what Paul says. And so how do we find that out? Well, what we have to do is we have to do a little work. Because if you think it's just one of the Twelve, well, does that mean that there are 13, 14? How many are you going to have? And the reason we have this trouble is because we read about the 12 apostles and we just assume because there were 12 apostles, that means Paul's got to either be one of the 12. Otherwise, why are they using the word apostle with him? And what do you do with this passage of scripture over here that uses the word apostle as opposed to that one? The reason why, how many of you took math? How many of you passed? How many of you remember? Okay, did you see about half the hands went down on that one? Of the people who passed, half the hands went down when I said, how many of you remember? My daughter, who just graduated from high school yesterday, she did not hold her hand up for how many of you remember. Here's the math lesson. Don't use the transitive theory of mathematics when you read the Bible. Do you remember what the transitive theory of mathematics is? All right. Go to the Elmo with me. Here's the transitive theory of mathematics. If A plus B equals C, 
and B plus C equals D. Then, because the B's are the same, okay, I've just messed up the transitive theory of math. You know that these B's are always going to be the same, so you can treat them the same. So what you'd have to do is you'd have to go C minus A equals B. That's what that means. So you can take that B and you can substitute in C minus A plus C equals D. You can do this kind of stuff. Once you see one factor here, the factor is going to be the same in the next uh, uh, line of the related equation. Go back to the PowerPoint. Let me dig out of this. Here's my point. Just because you have a word in one place in the Bible doesn't mean every time you see the word in other places in the Bible, it means the exact same thing. You cannot say that. So you may have in Matthew 10, verse 2, the reference, the names of the 12 apostles are these. And you get the idea, there are 12 apostles. Jesus selected 12 apostles. These are their names. You can skip to Revelation 21 and see where John in his vision says that the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so you say, okay, there are 12 apostles. They have 12 names. Those are the ones on the foundations of the walls, and, and that's what it is. Hmm. You can't always do that. You can't now go and find every usage of the word apostle and assume that it's referencing one of those 12. See, the Bible's written by different, it's, it's a divine book, but a divine book that's also a human book. God is responsible for scripture, but he used people in its production. It's like Jesus himself is fully divine, but yet he was fully human. We see the Bible, so the Bible, the New Testament alone was written over 50 years by multiple authors who used words to mean different things. We do the same thing today. If I want to ask you how you feel about the president, careful, you might immediately tell me your thoughts about Donald Trump. Or you might tell me your thoughts about the president of ExxonMobil. See, I can use the word president and mean two entirely different people, depending upon context. And the same can be said with a number of different things. So be very, very careful when you get this. You can read about these apostles... Uh-oh, we just, I think I may wind up needing more batteries for this little puppy. Would you advance the slide for me, please, from back there? We can read about these 12 apostles in these passages. Advance it one more for me, please. But we've got to be careful about how we use it because we have, if you'll advance, oh, Okay, we didn't advance that time. We just hit the button on the back of the remote down at the bottom that blacks out the screen. If we could unhit that button. Oh, good. Now, would you advance the slide for me? You know what we're going to do in a minute? We're going to the elbow. We're not going to be frustrated with this one. Okay, give me one more slide. So here are our options. Let's understand how we get the word apostle. And uh, um, if we think that the Elmo's working out, I'll just go to the Elmo while they fix the, the thing. We can do this on the Elmo. So we have an English word, apostle. Now, where does that come from? Any suggestions? Any ideas? Thank you. Um, all right, we can go back to the Elmo. I mean, to PowerPoint. Thank you. The English word apostle comes from the Latin word apostolo. Uh, uh, well, they're long, so you uh, have the second syllable of the penultimate 
apostolus, apostolus. It's the way you would say it in Latin. Apostolus. All that the King James and Tyndall and others did is take the Latin word apostolus and put it into a more English ending. We're just speaking Latin. Now you say, okay, well, what's the Latin word mean? Well, the Latin word wasn't a very common Latin word. There actually was an apostolos in Latin that referenced the idea of uh, kind of a brief that you would send to a higher court. It was a a, a legal pleading that went to a higher court. But that's not what it's talking about. We get that from the Latin translation of the Bible called the Vulgate, which Jerome did. And Jerome in the 4th century does this translation of the Bible and the New Testament goes from Greek into Latin. And he comes across this word that in Latin he translates as apostolus. It's a Greek word. The Greek word is apostolos. (laughs) So all Jerome did is just take a Greek word and turn it into a Latin word, which the translators of the Bible then turned into an English word. But it all goes back to this Greek word apostolos. So now we got to know, well, what is an apostolos? The way the Bible translators and others figure this out is first they just look at Greek literature from the time. Apostolos in Greek was not a normal word. It's one that doesn't get used a lot, but what it's typically used of, not always, but typically used of, is like a naval expedition that gets sent out. It's when you send out that naval expedition to go do whatever they're going to do, to take people, to take product, to go invade. That naval expedition is often called the apostolos. And the reason, that the, the key behind it, uh, let me, let's go back to the Elmo. Um, some of you are thinking, why is he talking about this? I don't care about this. Some people in here do. we got a big class and some people uh, care about this. So just... Hold on and eat a little more of your donut. Okay, so we've got this Greek word, um, apostolos. And it actually is kind of a conglomeration of two Greek words. Apo. um, Apo, let me center that. And there's a Greek verb, stello. And stello means to send. Apo, in this sense, out. Apo, stello, means to send out. When you put it into the noun form, apostolos, it means someone who sent out. Or something that is sent out, usually in an official capacity. By the way, if you ever want to try and remember... We get our word postal from it. Post office from it. A posting is from it. A postalos, something sent out. Usually in some official capacity with some measure of authority. Now, the naval ship doesn't go out on its own. Have you ever seen a naval ship say, hey, I think I'll go to the Mediterranean today. No, it gets sent. It's it's inanimate. It just gets sent. And that's the tradition behind the Greek word. Now, when you get to the New Testament and you see this word apostolos, it's used in different senses. But always with this idea of some messenger or someone who is sent out. And so, for example, you have the twelve. And Jesus picked out of his disciples twelve that were apostolos. They were apostles. They were sent out by Jesus to go do these things. And when one of them went down, a.k.a. Judas, another one, Matthias, stepped in so that they would have that full assortment of twelve to do what Jesus told the twelve to do. Because Jesus gave those twelve instructions. And so that's what they did. And you can see the word being used for them. But it's also used just for an envoy, just for a messenger. 2 Corinthians 8.23, 
you, if you want to read it in your Bible, might look at it and say, well, where does that say apostle? 2 Corinthians 8.23, here it is. Paul says, as for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. As for our brothers, they are messengers, apostoloi, plural, apostles of the churches, the glory of Christ. They're not the twelve. They're just messengers. They're people we've sent out. They're envoys. They're representatives sent out on our behalf for the churches to the glory of Christ. So the word, the Hebrew, that's okay, don't worry about it. The Hebrew word apostolos, I mean the Greek word apostolos, is just a, can be an envoy. Jesus is called an apostle in Hebrews 3 verse 1. Hebrews 3 verse 1 says that Jesus is an apostle. Do you doubt it? If you do, it's in the book. Hebrews 3 verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus was God's envoy. He was God's messenger. He was God's representative. He was sent by God. So you see all of this. You see that there were even false apostles in the Bible. Paul writes about those people who claim to have been sent out, but weren't really sent out under authority. And so you've got all of this, and the key to it all is the idea of someone having the authority of having been sent. Which raises the question, what kind of apostle was Paul? And it's an important question. I would suggest to you Paul is an apostle of the same caliber, same quality, same type as the actual 12. Jesus sent those 12 out. Jesus sent Paul out. If you look in, in, um, let's, let's, let's do it this way. Galatians 1, 1, and 117. See what claims Paul makes here in Galatians. Paul says, 1-1, it's where the letter starts. Paul says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. By the way, every time Paul labels himself an apostle, he labels himself as an apostle and he tells who sent him. That's why he adds those labels. He doesn't just say that because he's got to fit Jesus into verse 1. He's saying that because that's his CV. That's his resume. Those are his credentials. Doesn't help to flash a badge if the badge isn't authentic. He's saying, I am sent not from men. I was sent. The authority with which I come to you is not from men. It's not through men. This authority comes through Jesus Christ and God the Father. So that's what he says. He says, I'm an apostle. And then he starts telling what happened to him. And he wants you to know that the, the message, the gospel that he preached isn't man's gospel. He says, I didn't receive it from a man. I wasn't taught it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus. You've heard my former life. I persecuted the church of God violently. I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. I was so extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers, the Pharisees. But when he who set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I didn't immediately consult with anyone. He says, I didn't go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. See, he says, I'm an apostle, but he puts himself on the level of the apostles in Jerusalem because that's what he was. He was on that level. 
So we've got Paul. Paul is like the 12, but he's an apostle to the Gentiles. And that's what he is. He's set apart for the gospel. He was called to be an apostle. Called by the will of God to be an apostle. An apostle not through men, but through Jesus. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. By the will of God. By the command of God. He was sent. Paul was out there on God's business. Now, here's the question. What does this matter? Why does this matter? Well, one reason it matters is because it changes how we pay attention to what Paul said. Because here's what Paul's claiming. Understand the Bible says God sends Jesus to the world. That's what it means for Jesus to be an apostle. God sent Jesus to the world. Jesus then sends his representatives, the apostles, and they are sent by Jesus. And it is those representatives who deliver the message of Jesus, which is the message of God. And that's why Paul starts all of his letters out by establishing himself in the chain of, not custody, but the chain of authority. God sent Jesus, Jesus sent the apostles, Paul is an apostle, and he's not one because some human made him that. He's been called that by God and sent by Jesus, by the will of God. So we pay attention to what he said. And that's what the church is built on. So the church is built, and Paul says it in Ephesians 2, you, the church, are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Those who speak the word of God, who have been sent by God, are the foundation upon which the church is built. So we read the writings of Paul, and they're not second-class writings compared to the sayings of Jesus. Paul is speaking on the authority of Jesus, and Jesus on the authority of God. And that's the difference it makes. Is Paul an apostle, real or fake? He's real. Is he an apostle light? No. Now, what about the money? Well, let's talk about Paul and money for a moment. Really interesting here. So, Galatians 1 that I just read to you, we started at verse 11, but I stopped there. I didn't keep going. If I had kept going, you would have gotten to this point where Paul says, after three years, I went to Jerusalem to visit Peter, remained with him 15 days. Cephas is Peter. I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And while I'm writing to you before God, I don't lie. Then I went into Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They just heard about it. Then after 14 years, I, look, he wasn't in this for the money. He's not doing anything for the money. It's 14 years later, now 17 years after he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He goes up to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus because of a revelation. And he has a meeting with them. Now he's already been out there evangelizing these last few years, doing mission work. But he's doing it to make sure he's not running in vain. He goes to the apostles, he talks to them, he lays before them what he's doing, he gets their anointing from the Jerusalem apostles, they tell him to get back out there, keep being the apostle to the Gentiles, and look what they tell him. Only, they ask us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. Paul wasn't out there trying to find the rich people to come to the heaven. Paul wasn't out there trying to find the people who could fund the church. Paul was trying to find anyone who would come to Jesus. But Paul didn't treat one group of people any different than the other. Remembering the poor is something most people in society then did not do. The poor weren't citizens. The poor didn't have rights. The poor were not going to do anything for anybody. But Paul says, that's the very thing I wanted to do. See, Paul left his money and wealth behind because he was obedient to God's sending. Paul doesn't become an apostle for money. There's no money in it. 
There's no money in it. Paul becomes an apostle. Look, Paul goes out there and he makes tents. Tent maker probably means leather worker. So he did more than just make tents. But Paul goes out there as a tradesman, as a craftsman to pay for his way. And it's really interesting what that means. That's Paul being a good Jew. The Jewish teaching was, and we get it from the Mishnah, which if you've been in class, we've been talking about a lot. The Mishnah explains that a good Jew does not teach the law, the Torah, the words of God for money. A good Jew makes his money another way. Rabbi Gamaliel uh, says, let's see, I need 2-2. Two, two. Rabbi Gamaliel, can you see, can I get it all on one page? Hold on, hold on, we're going to do this. We've got the technology, we can make it work. Bump, bump, can you all read that okay? Rabbi Gamaliel says, it's fitting to learn the Torah along with a craft. For the labor put into the two of them makes one forget sin. And all learning of the Torah, which is not joined with labor. In other words, all learning where you're working to do it is destined to be null and cause sin. Rabbi Hillel, and this is not uh, as easy a translation to follow, but Rabbi Hillel uh, says much the same thing. First of all, uh, uh, Rabbi Sadak says, don't make Torah teachings a crown with which to glorify yourself or a spade with which to dig. In other words, don't make your money off of teaching the Torah. Rabbi Hillel thus said, if you do, you perish. So the Jews were taught, good Jews were taught, Paul was taught, you don't make your money off teaching. Now, the irony behind all of this is Paul's being a good Jew, but he's out in the Gentile world. And in the Gentile world, that's the reference I just had. In the Gentile world, it's very different. In the Gentile world, if you're working a trade or a craft, they spit on you. In the Gentile world, if you're really good at teaching, you get paid for it. So Paul goes out into the Gentile world and Paul's being a good Jew and he doesn't take money. He makes his own. He pays his own way. And as a result, some of the fake apostles come in and say, Paul's not a real apostle. If he was, he'd get paid for doing this. I can't even make a living off of it. He has to, has to work. He has to do manual labor. That's the guy you're going to follow? Look, I'm charging you for this. You get what you pay for. What'd you pay Paul? Zero? That's what you got. Me, on the other hand, I'm expensive. So pay me, and I'll tell you what you want to hear. And that's what Paul has to confront. And these passages out of 1 Corinthians, out of 2 Corinthians, he's confronting these, and he says to him, he says, what? Am I to be, look at 1 Corinthians 9.13. Um, just took too long on the Thomas story. 1 Corinthians 9.13. He says, look. I'm not talking on human authority. I mean, you don't muzzle an ox when it treads out grain. You feed the ox who's working for you. That's written for our sake. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, others get paid for what they're doing, don't we have that right? But we've not made use of this right. We would endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of Jesus and the gospel. Don't you know those who are employed in the temple, they get their food from the temple. The Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That's the way it should be. He says, but I've made no use of any of these rights. I'm not writing this so that you'll give me anything. I'd rather die. 
then you deprived me of my ability to say, I'm doing this because God sent me, not because you're paying me. I mean, Paul's pretty emphatic about it. If you go to the other passages, you see over and over Paul and the money. He says in 1 Thessalonians, if we go back to the PowerPoint, please. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2, Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day so that we wouldn't be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. Hey, this He isn't in it for the money. He isn't getting any. It's costing him. He's having to work full time while he takes the message out so that he can do it and no one can accuse him of doing it for what he gets. He's doing it because God sent him. He says, we didn't need anyone's bread without paying for it. We, we With toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And this is the way Paul was. So here are the points for home. In conclusion, as we get to these points, Paul's not Thomas Justin Phelps III who's come in to fleece people. Paul's not someone whose message is to be discounted because he's in it for the do-re-mi. Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain and we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Now think about this for a moment. This is what Paul the Apostle has been sent out to say. This is what Paul the Apostle is, is telling people for free. Not only for free. I mean, he gets persecuted for it. He gets whipped for it. He gets robbed. He gets thrown. And, and, and it's not like he's traveling with a bunch of money. He's working from place to place. But he's only doing it because he's been sent with a message. And I got to tell you, I'm going to listen to him. He's got credibility with me. And his message is pretty simple. Christ has been raised. If Christ is not raised from the dead, if this whole thing is just a feel-good religion, if this whole thing is just a neat way to raise your kids, if this whole thing is just something to do on Sundays, if that's all this is, then Paul is preaching in vain, our faith is in vain, and what's more, he's misrepresenting God. And he's got no motive to do that. Every motive not to. Point for home number two. Paul was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. That's what he says in 2 Timothy 1.11. And so he gives up his life. He gives up his fame. He gives up his occupation. He gives everything up to go do what God told him to do. Okay, that blows me away. I just got to tell you, that blows me away. It, it, it inspires me to want God's interests and not my own. What are you going to do for a living? What do you do for a living? I hope the answer is first and foremost what God wants me to be doing. It doesn't matter whether that's practicing law or whether that's teaching or whether that's driving a delivery truck or whether that's shredding documents. If you're doing what God's called you to do, the goal is not to become society. The goal is not to become wealthy. The goal is not to become comfortable and cushy in life. The goal is not to retire early, unless that's what God wants from you, because he's putting you to use in his kingdom. The goal is, where do we fit into God's kingdom? And what are we doing for him? And then the last thing is Paul's comment, he was told by the apostles, remember the poor. Okay, this one bothers me, and I hope it bothers you. So how do I remember the poor? Do I give them a fish? They eat for a day. Do I teach them to fish? They eat for a lifetime. Unless they live in Lubbock, where there's really no place to fish. 
then you teach them to farm. I do, do, do I, how do I, what do I do with the poor people who don't want to be responsible? But what do I do with the poor people who are just need help? You know, and, and, and how do you help them without just helping them for a day? I mean, what, this is troublesome. If I were a politician, thank you, Lord, that's not the life you put in me. But if I were a politician, this would really be troublesome. I mean, how do we take care? How do we remember the poor? It's a whole lot easier to remember the people who can do things for you and with you. And I tell you that and I leave you with that because I got a lot to think about this week on that point. And I hope we all do. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus? Father, thank you so much for giving us an opportunity to, to learn about Paul. Uh, it's amazing, Lord. Here's this fellow that you called and you sent and you changed the world as he proclaimed Jesus Christ, the eternity difference. So, Lord, here we are. Send us. Use us. Take us in our feebleness, in our frailties, in our insecurities, in our doubts, in our difficulties, in our strains, in our stresses, in all of the different avenues of life where we fall. Take us. Blaze a trail in front of us. And send us in your name. And may we remember the poor. Through Jesus our Lord, amen. Mm-hmm.